Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Adam, and I'm so glad that you are here. I saw some of you come in this morning with a gift that you put over on that sleigh for a child in need, and I just want to say thank you to everybody who is doing that. This is just an incredible way that we can be a blessing to some of those kids. Now, I heard a story of a 10-year-old kid who was writing a wish list to Jesus, and he wrote on there, Dear Jesus, I would really like a new bicycle for Christmas. I have been a good boy all year. And then he crossed that out and wrote, I have been a good boy for the last six months. And he crossed that out too and wrote, I have been a good boy for the last month. And then in a moment of honesty, crossed that out too and wrote, I have been a good boy for the last week. Then he slams his pencil on the table and walks into the living room to the nativity scene. And he takes the figurine of Mary and goes back to his pencil and paper and he writes, Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're not trying to bargain with Jesus for what you want for Christmas. But here's the connection. Maybe, just maybe, if you are honest with yourself, there's some things in your past that you're just not not proud of. Uh, Maybe there's some shame some regret that is tied to the things that you have done. And you're afraid that if people knew about your past, then they would judge you for it. They wouldn't look at you the same. And maybe you're even afraid of how God looks at you, as if your past makes you disqualified, disqualified from experiencing a relationship with God or knowing his love or being able to experience heaven with him for all of eternity. And so... I think this is a really real thing that is on the hearts and minds of a lot of us this morning. And I want to use this message to answer the question, is there hope when my past haunts me? Is there hope when my past haunts me? And as you came into the service this morning, most of you would have gotten this little slip of paper that says, my past. And then on the back side of it, it says, the past that haunts me. And if you would like to just kind of take notes throughout this service, I really want to encourage you to write down on this little slip of paper some of the things of your past that maybe keep you up at night or that you're ashamed of or that you would not want anybody else to find out. And I promise that I'm not going to ask you to turn these in at the end of the service. I'm not going to read it. Nobody else is going to read it. But this is just between you and God, and maybe this can be part of your spiritual journey, and then we'll tell you what to do with these pieces of paper at the end of the service. So anyways, to answer this question, is there hope when my past haunts me? We're going to be looking at four stories in the Bible of some women who had a pretty shameful past and some things that really haunted them. Now, before we get into their stories, I just need to give a disclaimer and say that a big part of their stories is sexual sin. And as we get into the events of their lives, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, why is this stuff even in the Bible? And why would you talk about this in church? And I think that these things are in the Bible because when God gives his word, he doesn't just give us a polished version of history. This is pretty real to how life is. And God didn't just edit out all the stories about sexual sin. And I think that he did this for a reason. 
And we might not like to talk about it, but the reality is that we are living in a world full of sexual sin. And even those of us who are sitting here in church are not excluded from that. And maybe um, it's going through um, an affair. Maybe it's doing some things in your past that you regret that then led to an abortion. It could be that you've gone through a really messy divorce or something like that. And there's few things in life that carry the weight of more guilt and shame than sexual sin. And what we're going to see in these stories that we're about to read this morning is that even for somebody who feels that weight on their shoulders, that there is hope. And that hope is worth talking about. And so that's why we'll be talking about this here in church this morning. So I'll be covering these four stories. We're going to just go through them pretty quickly. And then as we wrap things up, We'll be talking about how there is hope, even if you have a past like that, and how that hope is in Jesus. And so first off, we are going to get into a story about a woman named Tamar. Now, her name might be a little bit misleading if you've been coming to church for the last few weeks, because we've already talked about a woman named Tamar, but this is a different Tamar. Now, perhaps you're familiar with the story of Joseph in the coat of many colors, and he was the guy who was sold by his brothers into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt. But smack dab in the middle of Joseph's story is kind of this side story about his brother named Judah and his daughter-in-law named Tamar. And so that's the story that we are going to get into in Genesis chapter 38 and verse 6. It says this, Judah got a wife for Ur, his, son, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. So, boom, right off the bat, Tamar becomes a widow. Now, back in this time, there was no such thing as life insurance. Uh, she didn't have the option of taking a loan out to go to college and then just get a career and be an independent career woman. Back in this time, there's really only like two options for Tamar. She could become a prostitute to make ends meet, or she could go back and live with her father and mother, which is a really shameful thing to do. Like if you made that move, you're kind of being labeled as the person who goes back to live in your parents' basement. But thankfully, God loves women, and he doesn't want any woman to be destitute. And so God put in place this set of customs for taking care of women who are in a predicament like this. And God spells it out in the book of Deuteronomy, where it says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now this was a custom that was for the people of God before the time of Jesus. I mean, this isn't something that we do today and it's not like a command in the Bible, but this is God's way of taking care of widows back before there was life insurance and the options of going to college and getting a career and all that kind of stuff. And so Judah has Tamar married to his other son, but guess what? 
This other son was also wicked, and so God ended his life as well. And Tamar becomes a widow again. And then in the story, it says that Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he may die too, and just like his brothers. And so Tamar went to live with her father's household. Now remember, it's a pretty shameful move to go from being a married woman to then being widowed and not having a child to carry on the family name and then go live with your parents. And so this should have only been a temporary solution until Sheila was old enough to marry Tamar. But I think that Judah thought that Tamar was bad luck or something because after all, when his other two sons had married her, they dropped dead. And so he did not want his last son to marry Tamar, even though it was the thing that the Bible instructed them to do. And so years and years went by, and still Tamar was living as a widow, and Sheila was not given to her as a husband because Judah was not fulfilling his responsibility. So Tamar took matters into her own hands, and she dressed herself as a prostitute and just kind of hung out on the side of the road where she knew that Judah would come walking by. And her plan worked out just the way she wanted it to, where Judah came up to her and hired her out as a prostitute. And at the end of this story, she gives birth to twins because she was impregnated by her father-in-law. The plan worked, but that whole circumstance was just surrounded by sexual sin. And what we see from this story, the bottom line, is that Tamar stopped trusting God and took matters into her own hands. So that's the first story. Now we're going to move on to the second story about a woman named Rahab. And Rahab does not come from a Jewish heritage. In fact, she grew up in a pagan city called Jericho. And Jericho is located in what is now modern-day Israel. But she lived there before that land was inhabited by the Israelites. The Israelites had escaped from Egypt, and they lived in the wilderness for 40 years under the leadership of Moses. But then before entering the land that God had promised them, Moses died. And now the nation of Israel was being led by a man named Joshua. And Joshua led these people into this promised land. And in order to possess that land, they needed to kick out the wicked people who were living there. And Jericho was one of those cities full of wicked people. And so in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. And so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, you're probably like, I know what they're doing in Rahab's house. But this isn't what it looks like. These guys were undercover. They didn't want anybody to know that they were Israelites and that they were scoping the place out. But their cover was blown. And so they were trying to escape from the city guards. And Rahab was helping them escape by hiding them in her house. And Rahab basically became a traitor and helped them out because she believed that the God of the Israelites was the one true God. She had heard the stories about how God had delivered them from the land of Egypt. 
And she believed that God would also give them victory in possessing this land that he had promised to them. And so she helped them out. But in return for her help, she asked them to spare the life of her and all of her family when they would attack that city. And these two spies were true to their word. And so a little further in the story in Joshua chapter 6, verse 24, when they attacked the city, it says, they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men that Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. So Rahab is written down in history as a woman who believed in God, that he was the one true God, and she helped these spies and helped the people of God. But she's also just known as a prostitute for the rest of her life. Even a thousand years later, when the book of Hebrews was written, it says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And also in the book of James, it says, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab wasn't just known as the woman who feared God and helped the spies. All throughout history, she's been known as Rahab the prostitute. She was known by her past. And Rahab was a woman with a terribly sinful past. Now we're going to move on from Rahab and look at the story of a woman named Ruth. And we're just going to jump right into the scripture in the book of Ruth in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And then a few verses down, it says, They married Moabite women, one of them named Orpha and the other Ruth. And they had lived there about 10 years. Now, the one detail that I want to focus on in these verses is that Ruth was a Moabite. Now, for most of us, we wouldn't think that that's really a big deal. And if you were to read the book of Ruth, you would see that she was a virtuous and upright woman. She was very selfless. There's hardly anything that you could point at Ruth at and be like, she was in the wrong. But in her family heritage, there's some really shameful things. And so if we track down the family tree of Ruth, this is what we would see. You're probably familiar with Abraham. He's the father of the Israelite nation. But Abraham also had a cousin named Lot. And Lot and his family lived in a very sinful city called Sodom. Now imagine Vegas times 10. And it got to the point where God said that he was going to destroy that city. But he helped Lot and his family escape. And so Lot and his two daughters escaped to the mountains. And out there in the mountains, they were all alone. And his two daughters were not married at this time, and they wanted to have a family of their own, but there wasn't so much as a redneck man living in all of those mountains. And so just like Tamar, they took matters into their own hands, 
And they got their father drunk in order to have kids with him. And so in Genesis chapter 19, verse 36, it says, So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites today. Now that's a pretty messy family history. Now that's Ruth's family history for you. And she was always known as Ruth the Moabite. And because people knew of her family history, they probably thought they knew Ruth and they would put a certain label on Ruth. And so from a human perspective, we see that Ruth didn't do anything wrong, but it seems like she was just born into the wrong family, a family with a lot of shame and just messiness and baggage. And now we're going to move on to this last story before we talk about how there is hope for anybody who is haunted by their past. And this last story is about a woman named Bathsheba. And we've already talked about Bathsheba for the last few weeks, and so I'll cover this one pretty quickly and just get right into the story. So in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 2, it says, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messages to get her. And she came to him, and, she slept, and he slept with her. And now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And she then went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And so the David in this story is none other than King David. And if you are summoned by the king to come to his palace, you probably have to go. And so Bathsheba goes to King David, and after a little while, she probably would have realized that David didn't invite her over to the palace just to entertain her with small talk. She probably would have figured out David's intentions and that he wanted to sleep with her that night. And she was put in a a very uncomfortable, unfortunate circumstance where the most powerful person in that nation was asking her to commit adultery against her husband. And I don't know exactly how things played out in this story, but what we know is that at the end of the day, Bathsheba slept with David and was impregnated by him. And when David found out that she was pregnant, he had her husband killed off in battle, and he made it look like an accident. And then he married Bathsheba. And even though King David married Bathsheba, all throughout biblical history, she isn't referred to as the wife of King David. She is still known as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And even though David was the one who was definitely in the wrong, and he put her in this compromising position, she went along with it. And Bathsheba made just one sinful, life-altering choice. And so I bring up all of these stories because maybe you can relate. Maybe as we were reading through the story of Tamar, and we read that Tamar stopped trusting God and took matters into her own hands might be looking back in your life and, and thinking through some times when you acted out of fear instead of trusting God. Maybe 
you had an abortion because you were afraid of having a baby in that season of your life. Maybe you stayed in a toxic relationship because you were afraid of being alone and lonely, and you didn't think that you deserved anything better than that, and so that's what you stayed with. We also went through the story of Rahab, and the bottom line is that she is a woman with a terribly sinful past. And maybe there's some things in your past that you feel like just keep coming up even though you're trying to move on. You can start a new chapter of your life, but you can't erase people's memories. Maybe you're afraid that people will still just keep looking at you a certain way and there's nothing that you can do to make up for what you've done. And then from the story of Ruth, we saw that she was born into the wrong family. It could be that you come from a family with a lot of dysfunction and people know about some things that have gone on in your family and because they know some things about their family, they think that they know you and they might label you a certain way even though that's not who you are. And then Bathsheba made one sinful, life-altering choice. Maybe you got pregnant before you were married. Uh, maybe you've gone through just some really regrettable things, um, whether it's having an affair with someone who's not your spouse. It could just be that it was an emotional, but you built up that connection with somebody that you weren't, weren't married to, and it's is something that still keeps you up at night or did some serious damage to your marriage. And I wanted to talk about these four stories in particular for a very specific reason. And I know that this might not sound like a Christmas sermon, but I'm going to make that connection in just a minute and share with you how there is hope, even if you have a past like that. So the book of Matthew, which is the first of the Gospels in the New Testament starts out with this genealogy. It's basically the family tree from the time of Abraham to the time that Jesus was born into the world. Now, I know that this font is really small. You don't have to go ahead and read this. And if we're super honest, if you come across a genealogy like this in the Bible, our first response is usually to just skim through it really quick or just turn the page. It's a little bit boring to go through so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so. Maybe not super interesting, but if you were a Jewish person, you might be geeking out over this because this is part of your family tree. But this is actually a very interesting genealogy where the writer slipped in some nuggets. And so that's what I'm really excited to show you. And maybe you can recognize these names because... These are the people that we talked about, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And back in this time in ancient history, it was extremely uncommon to include the names of women in a genealogy. And so the author of this genealogy is kind of breaking the mold here. And I think that he wants us to ask the question, why? Why are these names in here. And of all the women that he could have put in this genealogy, why these women? He could have included the name of Abraham's wife, Sarah or Rebecca, but instead it's these women who have 
very different backgrounds, come from different ethnicities, and live in different time periods. And so if we try to come up with the common thread for all of these women, actually the common thread is that they all have a shameful past. Whether it's a sin that they committed or something way back in their family that they are known for. And Jesus came to this earth, not just for the people who had their lives cleaned up, not just for the people who have their lives all together, but Jesus came to this earth and did what he did on the cross in order to give hope to people like this. And this hope that Jesus offers them is the same hope that is available to us. And Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10 This is during the time of Jesus' ministry as an adult. It said, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, and he was a tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, "Is it it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to this earth just to make religious people feel better about themselves. Jesus came to this earth for sinners, to offer them hope and to offer them a new life. Now there's this common idea in our culture that the way to have a relationship with God and the way to get into heaven is to just do enough good works that can outweigh your bad works. And maybe this sounds like a good idea if you're the kind of person who has a pretty good track record throughout your life. Like, you're looking pretty good on the outside. You haven't done anything super regrettable. But this is a really, really sad, tragic idea for anybody who has much of a past that is full of shame and regret. And maybe you feel like there is not enough good things that you could do to cover up the bad things that you did in your life. But here's the thing. This idea isn't what Jesus came to teach. This idea isn't even in the Bible. And the way to get to heaven is not about doing more good to outweigh the bad. The way to get to heaven is to have the bad in our life completely covered up with forgiveness from God. And Jesus came to this world in the form of a baby boy and grew up just like any other human, except he was perfect in everything that he did. There was no sin in the life of Jesus. And then when Jesus died on that cross as an innocent man, he took the price upon himself for the sin of all people, for all time. God poured out the punishment for sin on Jesus. And Jesus went through all of that so that anyone who believes in Jesus, that he really is the Son of God, that he is the way to heaven, anyone who believes that can have forgiveness from God. And that forgiveness means that God will no longer hold your sin against you. It is wiped clean by what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
And that is the hope that is available to all of us, no matter how bad our past is. There is no past that is so bad that it can't be covered by the forgiveness of God if you just turn to Jesus for salvation. And so this morning, I just want to leave us with this last point, that Christmas reminds us that the sins of our past can find forgiveness because of God's mercy. And normally at this point in the message, I'll give you some kind of application. But this morning, instead of doing that, I want to give you an invitation. At the end of this service, after we finish up with our last song, if you would like anybody to just pray for you, then we'll have a team of people up here who would love to just pray about whether it's some things that are really bothering you about your past. It could be you're just going through some things in life right now and you're looking for hope and you're looking for comfort and we want to take those things to God in prayer for you. If you have any questions just about life, about the Christian journey or about what it means to really have forgiveness, we might not have all of the answers but we would love to talk with you and just meet you wherever you are at. At this point in the service, we are going on to celebrate the baptism of somebody who has put their faith in Jesus and wants to make that public. And so I'm going to invite Kurt up here and Dean and Harry. Um, Notes are right there. And I'll let you guys take the stage.